in YC history, uh, there's been 35 African companies, 33 of them still exist today, which is really impressive. And I think that tells you because most of the African companies that get into YC um, have a track, have, I mean, I think the bar is set that's even higher for us to get in. So even when we got in, in my batch, I would say we were one of the companies that had way more progress and traction than almost everybody in our batch. Uh, I think probably the most, um, you know, because, and so it, it felt like we got into YC quote unquote late, you know, um, versus like other people like idea stage or like, Hey, we've got some prototype working. I'm like, no, we have, and we're moving this much money and these many users are transacting every day. Um, it was a lot harder. So I think uh, in terms of building a company in Tanzania, really hard for tech talent. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today was Benjamin Fernandez. And Benjamin runs Nala Money, a company based out of Tanzania, Africa. I am really, really excited to get this interview to you because it is right on point for what I thought I was going to find and also a lot of things I didn't think I was going to find about how different it is to do business and well, do startup business outside of Silicon Valley and the changing nature of uh, technology business outside of Silicon Valley. And I think you'll really enjoy this one if you have an interest in the globe, but you don't really know the, the details and the, the, the facts on the ground. This is why I love doing podcasts because I can reach out to somebody in Tanzania, Benjamin, for example, and find out like what it is, what he has learned from doing all this work in Tanzania over the last few years. And it's quite a story here. Um, so I hope you enjoy this. If you do enjoy it, please find us on Spotify, uh, or iTunes or Stitcher, any of the major podcasting platforms and give us a review or go ahead and subscribe. Um, and also I'm open on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, III. My DMs are open. You can send me a message and I will try to get back to you. I'd love to understand what brought you to the show, uh, what you find interesting about it, why you're here and why you're listening to me. So, and listening to the guests that I bring on. So have a great day. Thank you. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today, I'm interviewing Benjamin Fernandez. He is the CEO and founder of Nala. Uh, Nala is a, is, is a pan-African digital bank, um, and Benjamin lives in Tanzania, uh, and the, the app itself is live in Tanzania and Uganda. It's the top finance app in Tanzania. And uh, Benjamin studied in accounting in Northwestern, and he got his MBA from Stanford, uh, and we were just chatting before the show about how he spends his time between Dar es Salaam and San Francisco. And I was asking him about the flight, which must be miserable. Um, so let's get into that. I, I usually introduce people about this, or I usually interview people about the relationship between stress and creativity. And this is a perfect go into that because uh, that's a stressful flight, I can imagine. Can you, can you walk us through your flight? Yeah, it's not fun at all. First of all, thanks for having me on the show. Um, so yeah, it, I literally had started in Dar es Salaam, head to Amsterdam, and then from Amsterdam, I think it's maybe a 14-hour flight to San Francisco. Uh, when you get off, you don't really want to talk to anybody uh, and just want to go. Because like the, the time difference on jet lag is 11 hours. So you're just kind of done when you get to SF. And literally takes probably a day out of you uh, in terms of work. Um, so it's such a hard flight, but needs to happen. Mm -hmm. 
And what are you coming to San Francisco primarily for? Uh, so given like my relationships with school, uh, you know, I went to, to, as you mentioned, Stanford GSB. Uh, so I have a lot of classmates out there and folks who work in technology. Um, so mainly with SF, it's learning, it's working with peers that, you know, we're part of. We're actually also in Y Combinator's winter class. Uh, so some of our investors are based out of SF um, and just reconnecting with them and then reconnecting with folks who work in the payments uh, space. Um, the other reason I like coming out to SF, it's kind of like um, it gives me energy uh, to sit around and learn from so many different people who are experienced in building technology companies. Um, so often on the continent, a lot of people uh, come to us as an organization to learn from us. And I'm like, well, I also need to be fed somehow, somewhere. Um, so because I don't know everything. And a lot of people put us on this pedestal, what have you, of like, hey, this is a great tech company in, in Africa. But I'm like, well, look, I, I have a lot to learn myself. I don't think I have a lot figured out. And so um, I spent a lot of hours getting mentorship from people who work in technology and in SF or the Bay Area, um, as well as, you know, going out there myself to even see how people run processes and make, you know, on their journey of getting to product market fit. And that's interesting. Uh, this is a chance if you want to, you don't have to, of uh, calling mm -hmm. out any people who might be good to find anything they put out online in terms of mentorship or in terms of their learnings uh, uh, to anybody for anybody who's either listening in Tanzania or listening here in San Francisco who wants to kind of find these people who have this valuable information about how to find product market fit. Yeah, so I really like... Um, Michael Siebel from Y Combinator. I think Y Combinator in general just puts out incredible content. Um, also going back to Paul Graham's uh, essays that he writes about. Um, some of them are like six, seven years old, but they really apply to today. Uh, so I would say my favorites are watching YC videos, um, as well as you know learning from organizations that do things really well. Other people who, Benedict Evans from uh has a really good newsletter he sends out um it's extremely helpful and valuable and then there's one more that i like i'm blanking on his name the co-founder of angel list uh, um yes yeah. oh my gosh one of my favorites by far uh his tweet storms especially just incredible like i mean this so much wisdom yeah. uh so yeah he's one of my favorites that's actually how I started the show was I had never listened to a podcast before. And then I was sitting in Mexico city and I, I didn't mm. even usually check Twitter. Um, and then I yeah. Twitter all of a sudden, and then I saw somebody post his interview with Farnham street and I was like, Oh, mm. I have to interview founders about their meditation practice. Um, and then, and then I started, wow. to, I started to uh, do that. And then, but then there are other people I wanted to interview who don't, didn't see themselves having a meditation practice. So I was like, all right, now I'm going to broaden mm -hmm. the show. And now it's like very, very broad. Um, wow. And I'm so cool. In Africa. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. Like, I mean, we both look at, look up to the same, we read about the same guy and we're in two different places around the world. And that's really awesome. what I want to, what I want to talk with you about is just like, what is it like in Dar es Salaam building mm -hmm. a startup and you also have access to this mindscape of Silicon Valley and you have personal mm -hmm. access to it and you've been educated there. Um, and mm -hmm. I just really want to understand that, that, either conflict or potential of the, of, of that experience. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So growing up in Dar es Salaam, I mean, it's, it's not a San Francisco, it's not the United States. So, you know, you grow up, there are power cuts, there are 
things that happen. I mean, I know the Bay Area has power cuts now. We probably have more electricity on than the Bay Area right now. But um, I mean, it's it's just there's challenges and things that I feel uh, you become responsible for a lot at a very young age um, out here. And you're told to do a lot more at a young age. And I think there's an aspect of discipline and being street smart that it creates from you um, at a very young age. And I think that's something that has helped me uh, be like very disciplined about, you know, how I craft and use my uh, energy, let's say at work or to learn things. Uh, because you don't have things given to you, you know, their level of income here is much lower. Um, you know, for example, on my personal side, um, I was sponsored uh, to go to school in the States for undergrad. I was fully sponsored to go to Stanford Business School. I got the Africa MBA fellowship. Mm. Um, so, you know, for myself, let's say even with my own family, my sister and I are the first in our family history to go to college. Mm. Uh, no one's been to college in my family history. And so this was all new for us. And so we're like these guinea pigs just figuring out stuff. And I think the drive that being here on the continent really pushes you to do. I knew when I got to America the first time, I needed to work really, really hard. Um, and like just to have this aspect of discipline created on me. Um, so even when I was at Northwestern, I was actually there on a, what do they call it? A trial period? I, I don't know what you call it in the States. Um, like a probationary period. Because uh, I didn't perform academically well in Tanzania. I was given three months. Um, and then, you know, performed really well after those three months. Got to stay on another three months. And, you know, graduated top of my class in undergrad. And that's what allowed me to stay there um, in the United States. And I honestly, you know, America gave me a second chance. And I wouldn't have had or be doing a lot of the, the things I'm doing today if I wasn't given that second chance in the first place. Mm. Um, so, so much I, I've learned. Going to Stanford was weird. Um, such a strange place. Uh, I mean, I was a fish out of the water, man. I, I remember my first week, week, we call it week zero, which is basically orientation. You go around meeting different classmates. I remember meeting so many folks and people would tell me like, because like the three questions everybody asks when you start is like, where are you from? What do you do before business school? And, you know, what are your interests or something like that? And, you know, I, I remember so often people would say, yeah, my name is Chris. I worked in PE and, you know, I'm from Chicago. And I'm like, man, like 20% of our class are physical education teachers, but they don't even look buff. Because <laughs> I, I, I didn't even know what PE meant. Like, I didn't know PE meant private equity. And like, people tell me, oh, yeah, I work in VC. Like, and, I, you know, sitting there in classes, we're like, yeah, series A, series B, series C. I'm like, why are we learning the alphabet backwards? <laughs> um, I was so lost. Like, I'm not even going to lie, Stuart. I was just like, I was nodding my head, pretending I knew what was happening. But, man, like, it it was I was a fish out of the water um, at business school, just learning so much and completely did not understand. You know, people love eating salads. I've never felt so unfit in my life being in the valley and seeing everybody work out every week. Um, I felt lazy. <laughs> I was like, man, like, am I the only one who's not fit here? Uh, it was it it was complete. I just from like East Coast to West Coast, like in the United States, completely different. Um, sorry, Midwest to West Coast, um, you know, uh, so yeah, a lot that I had to learn, uh, the hard way for many things, um, a, a fun story. I remember at, at Stanford, my first 
uh, the second week they have like all student clubs and um i'm from tanzania and so like there all these clubs people could sign up for and so there was i was going and signing up for like literally every club and there's a club that says gsb pride i'm like yeah i'm proud of being at the gsb like i'm gonna sign up for this club and so i did and then the founder of the club kept emailing saying, hey when are you gonna coming to our pride events and i was like hey you know sorry like i've, I've been a little bit busy and he's like hey when do you when do you come out and i was like oh august 25th and this is like <laughs> september 4th He's like, oh man, that that soon, like, oh, we should talk, we should totally talk, and you know, I met up with him for, for coffee, and, and until then, I didn't realize what pride was. Um, like, I I didn't know, and you know, for me, I was like, yeah, I'm proud, like school spirit, and you know, I didn't know, like, you know, pride, you know, what what pride meant, and you know, to to be supportive, and you know, what this meant for people out here, like in the states, like that was new for me, like culturally coming from you know, where I came from, like, this is all new. So I was like completely lost. Um, so anyway, sorry for the side story, but I, I learned so much uh, moving out there. And that's, it's really funny for me to hear that because I grew up, uh, uh, I grew up about 20 minute drive from Stanford and my uh, best friend growing up ended mm. up becoming a Stanford professor of history. So like uh, a professor in, in, in mm. history at Stanford. So it's really, it's really funny to hear somebody wow. who, who grew up in a completely different culture. Cause that's, you know, what I grew, <sighs> I grew up with people eating salads, talking about VC, mm. like uh, uh, <sighs> health conscious kind of, kind of, kind of thing. Um, and it's really weird because mm -hmm. for my twenties, I then left San Francisco and started living in other countries. And, and mm. I, I'd like to understand more for you. Cause if you're the first person, who has gone to college for your for your generation? Is there a lot of mm -hmm. pressure that comes from your family? Do they like expect you to mm -hmm. be uh, doing something mm -hmm. impactful and like? Because that it feels like it feels like that'd be a lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, like for example, it was all new for me, so I felt pressure. I know when I got to Northwestern because I was there on probation because I didn't perform actively well in high school, so I was given this three month trial period. So I definitely felt pressure there which I think led me to like work really hard, be disciplined with my time, you know, it taught me new skills just under that pressure. Um, and, you know, my dad used to tell me like, okay, they've given you three months. I give you one month. If you don't do well, I'm sending you to a farm in, in Pangani, which is a really rural area in Tanzania. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, it's either the farm or America. Like, I got to work hard if I want to stay here and make this happen. So there was definitely that pressure. Um, you know, and going to business school, for example, like, you know, I, Stuart, I never thought in my life I'd go to Stanford for, for school. It was never even in my dreams. Um, you know, I didn't know anybody who had gone to, you know, GSB or any of these top schools or universities. For me, it was just like a long shot. One professor, you know, came up to me one day and was like, hey, man, look, I want you to go get an MBA. And you should only go to Stanford and Harvard and nowhere else. And I said, what is an MBA? Mm -hmm. I remember having that conversation. And literally, you know, two years later, I was at Stanford. So, I mean, it, for me, it was just like completely new uh, to have to figure this out um, and have to start over there. Hmm. And then can you give my listeners a little bit more insight into Dar es Salaam? Um, I The little information I have about it is essentially it's an island off of the coast of Tanzania. Uh, but it's also been like in a very important trading hub for for th thousands of years um, and and is becoming a, a financial uh, hub as well for Africa. Yeah, so Dar es Salaam is, is not, so I think it, it maybe meant Zanzibar, 
Oh. Um, also, I, I think my, my, so Zanzibar is the island. Yeah. Um, also, we can redo that in case my dogs are barking. Give me one second. Let me just go hush them up. Um, one second. Yep. Uh, so for my listeners, I'd love for them to understand more about Dar es Salaam and the importance it has both within Tanzania and the region of Africa as a whole. Uh, it sounds like you might be have some intro insight into that. In particular, I want to understand the finance, financial insights of, of, of the, is it a financial hub for Africa? Yeah. Uh, so Dar es Salaam is one of the fastest growing cities in the world. Um, it, I think, mean, I think our GDP growth rate is about 8.2% a year. Um, and you know, it's the economic capital for Tanzania. Tanzania has 60 million people, uh, and our population growth rate is 3.2%. Um, but a few fun things about Africa to know, we have the world's youngest population. So, for example, in Tanzania, uh, exactly out of the 60 million people, 70% uh, of them are under the age of 24. Mm. So if you're 25, you're older than, you know, 70% of my country. Mm. Um, so, you know, as you know, what this means in the future, like, you know, a lot of I think Africa has mass potential to lead the world with labor uh, opportunity. Um, and, you know, whether it's with technology and what that looks like later on, I think there's a massive opportunity there for Africa to, to lead and, and like, you know, uh, across the world. Uh, additionally, with over 1.2 billion people on the continent and growing, um, I think there's mass opportunity with, you know, technology investments or even investments in general, whether it's agriculture, whether it's tourism, whether it's, you know, different industries that people want to get into. To, I think there's mass potential on the continent. So regarding my city itself as Dar es Salaam, um, it's where most of the trade happens uh, in, a lot of the trade happens in East Africa. I would say we have a large port that, you know, we neighbor nine different countries. Uh, we share a border with nine different countries in Tanzania. I think it's the most bordered country on, on the continent. Mm. Um, and, you know, it be can become a massive trade hub more and more in the future. So, you know, what it's like growing up here, I mean, trade increases um, with in terms of like mobile payments, um, about 60 or 70 billion dollars is transacted. Sorry, it's about 70 billion dollars is transacted on mobile money uh, a year in Tanzania, um, which is a lot. Uh, it's crazy to think, you know, how much money moves on these rails in sub-Saharan Africa uh, in 2018 alone, according to GSMA. $321 billion was transacted on mobile money. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's not really even a thing in the United States mm. um, and or many regions around the world. And so I think Africa is definitely more payments and mobile led. Um, and I think it's going to be really fascinating to see how this evolves and affects many different industries on the continent in the future. Mm. Very interesting. And I just like a quick side note, Dar es Salaam, I know that Dar is like home in, in, in Arabic, Dar means home and Salam means mm -hmm. um, How did yes. Dar es Salaam get that name? Home yeah, so it means port of peace, yeah. Port of peace. Harbor of peace, port of peace, home of peace. Um, or some people like to say haven of peace, which is actually the school I went to. Huh. Um, yeah, so that's that's where it's got to say. We have a lot of Arabic influence here. You know, it's Swahili is derived from a format of Arabic. Uh, so there's many words in Swahili, which is the language we speak, that, you know, is very similar to Arabic. Um, and so the, the, there's a lot of, you know, that's where it comes from. Um, you know, 
If you look at islands like Zanzibar, it was, you know, dominated by Oman. Um, and historically, you know, we have a lot of background and history there. Kilwa, it's a place south of Tanzania. You know, you'll find um, palaces built like in the 5th century there, uh, old remains. So it's pretty fascinating, the history uh, and, you know, of, you know, civilization and how it's evolved. You know, people usually come to Tanzania for three things. One is to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. It's the highest mountain in Africa and it's the highest freestanding mountain in the world. Uh, so many celebrities, even from the United States, come every year. Um, and the second thing people come to do is go to the national parks. We have the most animals per square kilometer than any other country in the world. Mm. Uh, so we're also home of the Serengeti and the Ngorongoro Crater. Um, and, you know, rumor has it is, you know, one of the original riding places for the Lion King. Mm. Um, and then the third thing people come to Tanzania to do is go to Zanzibar. So those are our three largest tourist attractions that people come to, to visit Tanzania for. And then in terms of both, we can get back into the finance as well, but I'd love to understand the kind of local startup ecosystem of, I, I guess it would be centered in Dar es Salaam, um, but mm -hmm. and then maybe its relationship in, next, uh, in, in relation to Nairobi, into Rwanda, and kind of what's evolving there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, for example, in Africa, I would say there's three main tech hubs. There's, you know, you have South Africa, you have Nigeria, and you have Kenya. You know, those are the three main places. Mm. And, you know, you would hope that, let's say, Tanzania catches up. I mean, in East Africa, we're the largest country in terms of population size. Kenya has 40 million, 44 million people. We have 60 million people. Uh, but we don't lead in technology. And, you know, my theory here is, and I think it's the same theory that is the reason to why South Africa, Nigeria, and Kenya lead is actually language. Mm. So these countries, you know, traditionally speak English. And you can get around with, you know, using English. Um, you know, they were also like former, you know, colonized by the British. And like when, when Tanzania was colonized by the British, when we got our independence, we told a lot of the British people to leave. And so we had, we try to build our country ourselves. So a lot of infrastructure we had to build on our own. And it's kind of put us a little bit behind uh, in terms of how developed our country is just from an in infrastructural level. And so when the, in my, I, I truly believe the language uh, barrier it's created for people wanting to trade in these markets or even invest into these markets because, you know, invest, an investor um, invests on trust. And when somebody can communicate the same language to them and they feel comfortable, uh, there's an aspect of trust that is built versus somebody who doesn't speak the similar language an interpreter gets involved and you're trusting the interpreter, even though you could see a potential viable business. So I think these are some of the reasons why these three countries have like led in terms of innovation and technology across uh, the continent. Mm -hmm. uh, Tanzania is not one of those leaders. And, you know, today we have 17 tech hubs in my country, um, you know, and most of the innovation happens in, you know, most of the startup scene is in Dar es Salaam. Mm -hmm. um, However, it's very, very far off from, you know, Kenya. Um, if you even look at how much investment is poured into Africa, 77% of technology investments go to, ten, uh, to Kenya, um, Kenya, Nigeria, and South Africa. Uh, there's a chart that somebody re recently published, and it shows this from 2019 alone. Um, so, you know, the other markets split, you know, the last, you know, 23%. Uh, percent. 
you know, so it's, it's, it's hard uh, to see that like, hey, you know, how do we build this up? But then if you compare it to the United States, Minneapolis is not a tech hub, you know, and neither is, you know, your country is like, you know, in the middle of the state. And so as much as I hope that, you know, Dar es Salaam will eventually be dominant uh, more than Nairobi, it may not happen. And I just have to be okay with that the same way that, you know, Minneapolis will never be a Silicon Valley. And, and that's the, the, there's a couple of things you said there that get into the, what I'm talking, what I like to talk about for the show, which is that um, there is a, a distribution of the ambition and spirit of Silicon Valley um, that is heading everywhere. And then there are urban centers around the world for, I'll give an example. I talked to somebody from Denver and Denver, mm-hmm. it's got a lot of good schools. It's got a lot of, you know, potential. It's not going to be Silicon Valley. Uh, but it will be its own thing. And the ambition of Silicon Valley is spreading there. So there can be large companies that will be, they'll be established there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to happen everywhere in the world. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I've discovered by talking to Ian Livingston, he is running a, a very deep technology company out of mm-hmm. Halifax, Canada, a very small place. And so for them, they've got, they're on this long tail and that long tail is really good for remote work. And then it becomes about like what you're building. And for them, that was a really deep tech kind of uh, machine learning. Uh, and so they could hire, you know, they could have a small team and they could hire remotely and they could, you know, they, there's some expert in France who they, who they hired and they could, they could all work remotely. So there's this long tail, which does so like create opportunity outside of these major, mm. major urban areas as well. But Dar es Salaam, like it's a big city. You, met, you mentioned Tanzania has like 40 million. The big question I have is how mm. much, um, English is uh, the lingua franca there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so oh, sorry, I, I didn't hear the last part of your question. So, so in it, Tanzania, how much is is English sp- spoken on the streets, or because it is, it is. Yeah, English is spoken there. Not right? as much. Okay. Yeah, English is spoken here, but not as much as like Nairobi, for example. If I'm in Nairobi, I can get around most places just speaking English. Mm-hmm. And and Dar es Salaam, which is our economic capital, you can't do that. Yeah. Uh, in, in certain neighborhoods, yes, uh, but not everywhere. Your, your random like taxi driver or Uber driver is not going to s- speak English enough for you to get around. Mm. Um, yeah, and only in certain neighborhoods for sure, but not everywhere in Dar. Mm. And then, um, so your company, Nala, what is the... Um, you guys are building a bank for Africa. Can you talk more about what Nala is right now and where it's going? Yeah. So my vision is to build a Pan-African digital bank. And what does that mean? It's a buzzword that everybody throws around. People define banks by different ways. Um, so here's, here's where like the journey started for us. You know, in Africa, people hear about mobile money and people in the States know maybe M-Pesa and people get so excited about it. I'm like, well, M-Pesa is, you know, 13, 12, 13 years old now. Mm-hmm. Um, did you know that? Um, it's kind of old innovation. That was mobile money 1.0. Like, you know, yes, they started like this whole aspect of using your cell phone um, as a way of paying and your cell phone becoming a bank account and super uh, innovative back then. And, you know, it's really transformed the way people make transactions today. But in Africa, there's over 135 mobile money deployments from different carriers across the continent. And, you know, over 321 billion is transacted across all these Mm -hmm. carriers. Um, And mobile money in most of these countries are telecom led. 
uh, so led by mobile mobile phone operators. So imagine your AT and T or your T Mobile being your bank account, your phone number being your bank account. Uh, that's how M-Pesa works. And so literally for you to add money to it, you can go to like a store, let's say you go to Safeway and hand somebody $10 there and they'll, you'll get a text message on your phone saying, hey, Stuart, you just added $10 to your, your phone number, which is your account. And then you can text that money to somebody else. Um, and so that's how mobile money works. And so it was a massive phenomenon back then. It's really transformed the way people pay and so much money's you know, moved on it. However, what we've learned is Africa is also multi-SIM. Mm. So your average African, according to GSMA, uh, owns 1.96 SIM cards. Mm. Um, so two SIM cards. And the reason for this is because, remember, Africa is prepay. You know, like many emerging markets across the globe, um, prepay is like how people pay for, like, say, calling minutes or, you know, data plans or SMS plans on their phone. And so... If your friends, let's say all, I'm using American names here so people can understand, if all your friends have AT&T um, and you have Verizon, it's more expensive, let's say, for you to text them or for you to call them. Um, and so many people try to have multiple accounts because let's say their family has AT&T, but their friends have T-Mobile. Mm. Um, so, you know, similarly with just using GSM for texting, calling, and data, it's also way more expensive to send across networks. So like, let's say your friends have AT&T and you have T-Mobile for you to send them money, let's say it costs you 30% mm. transaction fee. And if they had T-Mobile, it would cost you 5%. So there's multiple reasons why a lot of people who use mobile money on the continent have multiple SIM cards, multiple accounts. So the three things we're looking at, I said, you know, there's got to be an inflection point given there's a massive growth in smartphones across the continent today. Smartphones are getting sold as cheap as, you know, 18 to $25. And most of these smartphones getting sold are multiple SIM cards. If you want to build something in financial services, fintech is all about trust. That's the fundamental backbone for fintech, in my personal opinion. How do you build trust um, a fast way without having to, you know, do much effort for people? Like, you know, if I built a wallet today, I would have to spend so much educational money telling people why they should move money from their current mobile money account to a no-name wallet that they just heard of like five minutes ago. Mm. However, my theory was, I wonder if you enable a service and simplify a way people transact today across accounts they already use. So, you know, if they use M-Pesa or Tigo-Pesa or Etel Money, these are like our AT&T, Verizon, and T-Mobile uh, for their payments already. Can you enable one app instead of, you know, so because technology has grown, some of these telecoms have offered their own apps. So M-Pesa has an app, Tigo, M-Pesa has an app, you know, whatever. But instead of them having to have three apps on their phone just to make payments from these services, can you have one app that aggregates all these accounts and allows people to access all their accounts and, you know, make, you know, make all these payments through one app and make it work without internet? So that's what Nala's product is today. It's a mobile money application that allows you to make payments, pay friends, and purchase airtime across all your accounts um, through one app, and it works without data. Um, because data is expensive, and even though there's a growth in smartphones, not everybody has access to an active data connection. So the way we do this is um, it's, it's not rocket science. It's kind of like math. It's kind of <laughs> tacky. Um, what we do is the way you transact today is you literally – dial in imagine Stuart you dialing in the 39 to 46 digit code every single time you wanted to send me money uh, that's the reality 
that you know over sort of 200 million people face on a daily basis in Africa. Wow. Uh, it's like through this long text-based. It's called USSD technology. Right. Um, and so we we're like, okay, how do we automate that process? Like, can we create a script that will automate that process in the background of a user's phone? So where they just open app, select contact, select who they want to send money to, and in the background, Nala will dial all those digits for you and make the transaction happen. Because remember, all that requires is a GSM connection. So you don't need internet to do that. So that's what we've built as our first product. And, you know, it's been growing, as you mentioned, you know, today in Tanzania, we ranked number one top free finance app in the country um, on the Play Store. And, you know, if I told you how much we've spent on advertising material, we've spent probably $1,200 maximum on ads and within a year and a half to rank number one. Uh, and, you know, it, it's something that, you know, there's a large aspect of word of mouth. I think like 72% of our um, growth has been word of mouth because we've just always enabled the service people have already used for many years and just made it faster, simpler, and more conveniently for them to access all their accounts. And then they get a richer transaction history tool. And then my goal is as we build this trust through this interface product and move them to a wallet uh, and offer them a current account where we offer free peer-to-peer transactions. Because for me, it bothers me a lot that the lowest income region in the world is charged the most amount of money to send money. Like to have the highest transaction fees. Like, you know, that to me does not make any sense. And, you know, I want to change that. Like, I want peer-to-peer to be free. I want people to have that liberation instead of the fact that the largest telecom operator's mobile money product makes 18 times more revenue than the largest bank in the country that has corporate clients just from one mobile money product right. makes no sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And it, yeah, it seems predatory. And I remember reading about that. Uh, and it's interesting because finances can so often get into that predatory kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, and I want to go back to the USSD type of thing. So mm-hmm. uh, it's been maybe 10 years since I've used a feature phone. And uh, so, but I remember, you know, there were the kind of menu bar and everything like that. So you guys built mm-hmm. an application like that, that is being installed on phones that allows to uh, something like that. Yeah, so I mean, no, we 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 use so that technology is already existent through what the telecoms have built. Got it. So the telecoms have built all of the back end uh, for that. So the way people transact, even on a smartphone today, is by dialing in these USSD long strings on their phone um, to send money. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how people transact today. Like even as we speak, like mm-hmm. I would say, ninety eight percent of all the money moved, like on USSD in Africa, is done on. Sorry, all the mobile money use is done on USSD. Mm. Um, so that's why I was like, okay, look, well, these people own smartphones. Why aren't they using like the telecoms right. app? Most of the telecoms like outsource a team in India or wherever to like build their app with no like user design research, no spending time in the field to understand behavior. So their uptake is super low. So I was like, okay, well, if we can build this and aggregate all the accounts in one, because telecoms, like your Chase bank account will never have your bank account app within it, Mm -hmm. uh, where you can make payments from your Wells Fargo. So it's a unique opportunity for a third party to do this. Um, So that's where we see, okay, there's an opportunity here. Because if, for example, if Stuart uses his Chase bank account, his 
AT&T account and his Verizon account for all their pay- his payments through our app, we have the best credit score on like Stewart in the future. Mm. So if we want to offer Stewart a loan, we have the best risk profile on Stewart later on. Um, so that's kind of where we see our business, you know, like whether, you know, what I mean by digital banking, I mean like initially offering a current account then exploring like services in the future, whether is it, is it lending? Is it, um, insurance products? Like, you know, as, as we grow, you know, and, and understand customer needs and wants better, that's what's, what's going to determine that. Mm, that is really interesting. Um, and then how is it building a product in, in Dar es Salaam? How many employees, uh, how many people are you working with and like, what is what is the what are the main challenges and opportunities of working uh, of building a product uh, in Dar es Salaam? Oh my gosh, so many. Um, so I would say um, when we when we got into Y Combinator, um, I remember being told on our first day, out of all the Y Combinator companies in history, we had spent the least amount of money and had the most traction. <laughs> and for me, I was okay. like, whoa! Like I didn't I didn't know. Like honestly, I didn't know, Stuart, because like for me. I, we, we've been super frugal about everything. I mean, we are only three people total in our team till June this year, mm. you know? So since April, 2018 till June, 2019, we were only three people. Mm. Uh, and so for the most, so, and then we had a bunch of interns, like, you know, volunteering like during the summer, but that's it. And so literally I was head of customer care. I was like literally like the only customer care person. And like I was doing all product work and, it was, it was hard. Um, and so we had, I mean, we didn't have like, you know, people who are willing to bet and invest in Africa are very limited and very few. And so the bar for us is always way higher and everybody like, no one's like funding like ideas outright. I have no track record of building tech companies before or businesses before. So like people don't, you know, naturally like, Hey, like, Oh, this guy's got a cool idea, but I don't know. We'll see. So we had to work. It felt like we had to work even harder to prove ourselves to like, you know, why we, you know, to, to get in. For example, I was also told, so um, in YC history, uh, there's been 35 African companies, 33 of them still exist today, hmm. which is really impressive. Hmm. And I think that tells you because most of the African companies that get into YC um, have a track, have, I mean, I think the bar is set that's even higher for us to get in. So even when we got in, in my batch, I would say we were one of the companies that had way more progress and traction than almost everybody in our batch. Uh, I think probably the most, mm. um, you know, because, and so it, it felt like we got into YC quote unquote late, mm. you know, mm. um, versus like other people like idea stage or like, Hey, we've got some prototype working. I'm like, no, we have, and we're moving this much money and these many users are transacting every day. Mm. Um, it was a lot harder. So, I think uh, in terms of building a company in Tanzania, really hard for tech talent. Um, and here's, here's the challenge I face is because really good engineers um, get hired by telcoms. Mm-hmm. Like these are the people who offer mobile money services. Yeah. And you're never going to match that salary as a tiny tech company or a startup. Um, and so the telcoms pay them big bucks because they're also rare. So when your pool is rare, the cost that you can charge is a lot higher. And so even though like a lot of those engineers, we've interviewed a lot of them aren't the best engineers to be completely honest, but they're best, like they're really good in terms of the pool that's surrounded around them. So they look like, you know, 10 out of 10 when they might be like a four or five out of 10. 
uh, in comparison to other engineers we've interviewed or worked with. So, I mean, that, that's been a, the biggest challenge, I would say, on, on the continent is human capital, especially with software. Um, most of the stuff I learned today, I never learned in a class. Uh, I've learned from YouTube. Our team learns a lot from YouTube, uh, learns a lot from like people who are mentors. Um, I can't tell you, like, we don't have access to like, you know, boot camp schools that we can just do like, you know, sit down and attend a nine week program here in Dar es Salaam. You know, we, we could maybe try to do something online, but man, it, you know, when you're building a business, it's so hard to do both consecutively. So we, I mean, most of our team, you know, we're always figuring stuff out on the fly and like trying to learn stuff from YouTube videos all the time or like speaking to people or mentors or connections I have and hence why the Bay Area trips. Um, so again, uh, the biggest challenge I would say is human capital, uh, finding driven, dedicated people who are really focused and ambitious to figure this stuff out with you. Um, and specifically like software uh, engineers. Uh, is a massive challenge on the continent, not just in Tanzania, but like I would say uh, across many different countries. Um, I would say the biggest challenge. The second one is we don't really have that many regulation issues um, yet. I mean, most of the time, like regulation, when they don't understand what you do, like get defensive, um, like, oh, like stop this. And I'm like, well, I'm not doing anything that's illegal or bad. And then like after like six, seven meetings, they're like, ah, okay, fine. Um, so I haven't really had that challenge. I know people always fear regulation in Africa, like, no, like government's going to shut you down. Um, but yeah, I would say by far the biggest one is human capital. Uh, that's what keeps me up at night. And so there's a, a lot. I don't think we have time for all the questions I have from that. Uh, the first question I have is, you mentioned you guys are learning from YouTube. Is there anyone who is targeting the educational space for maybe like startups or kind of this information, not only startups, but also engineering uh, online education? Because I was talking, I, I talked, I interviewed somebody in Latin America who uh, they started a company or they were working for a company called Plotsy and Plotsy does online education in Spanish uh, for um, developers. Uh, so like taking that market that's already worked in the US uh, and then really dialing it down for the Latin American market. I'm wondering what is the, ecosystem like that for that in either Tanzania or Africa in general? Yeah. So, I mean, locally, I mean, people try to develop communities, local like Facebook circles and Google developers. Uh, so we try to go to these and try to be involved in supporting them as much as possible. Um, so it, but regarding like online, like where we learn it, like we use Udacity um, a lot. Um, and then there's some channels on YouTube uh, that we, we look at in terms of like just for software. And then in terms of product building, definitely the YC YouTube channel and, and Paul Graham's essays mm -hmm. <laughs> by far. Um, yeah, but in terms of like locally, it's, it's tough because even with the developer circle, um, you'll find like one or two like folks who are really committed to it and like the rest like, oh, I'm, I'm good with where I'm at because they get gigs and like companies will pay them like, to build a PHP website, you know, I'm like, all right, they're satisfied with earning that money. And I'm like, cool. And that's the, that's the big thing I've talked with a lot of people about is that the, so in San Francisco, uh, you know, you go on a conversation, you ask somebody, a random stranger on the street and you ask them what equity is and they'll have a, they'll have an mm -hmm. idea of what that is. 
you go mm -hmm. in Minneapolis and you ask a random person, maybe one out of 10, maybe one out of 20 will understand it. And then the rest of the world, probably a similar type of ratio. And that's like, there's this education component that has been going on for a long time in San Francisco that if you move here, mm -hmm. you're going to have a conversation about equity and about basically the future earning potential of your work if you sign up mm -hmm. for a riskier startup. Um, and that just doesn't exist in Tanzania. That, that if you, I, I would love no. to hear from you, uh, like yeah. a conversation you've had with an with a potential employee, like so you've got this gig at, at a telecom where they're going to mm -hmm. pay you a good salary, or you can come work for me, and it'll be a little riskier, but there is a larger upside potential. Yeah, I mean the challenge for them. I, I also feel for them. So like initially, I was really frustrated, but I get it because when you don't see technology startup exits mm -hmm. like in your friend group or like, you know, happen very often, uh, then you're like, ah, I don't think that's gonna happen. So people would rather see what am I getting at the end of the day and taking home, mm -hmm. um, like by far, like nobody, it, it's felt like nobody cares about equity, um, which, is, which is hard, it's disappointing because you want people to feel about the company. But then I think one thing that's helped change that in my office at least is uh, we do this thing called learning sessions. And I try to teach and inform and like not even just myself, but like, let's say, Stuart, if you're visiting Tanzania, I'm like, hey, can you come and do this week's learning session? Um, and then you talk about something like that. And then people will pay me afterwards, like, hey, Benji, like, I want to like talk, talk back about my compensation. Do you think we could see something on the equity? So like, you know, it does pop up later on. Um, but, you know, I think Africa is what Southeast Asia was in 2014 in terms of investment landscape. In 2014, 2013, people were like, oh, I don't know about Gojek or, you know, these Grab or all these different tech startups that are popping up here. It's still super early. We've never really seen an exit, you know, and, and today, if you actually match the numbers, like the investment amount that's coming to sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia is almost on par, exactly the same, just four or five years later. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, it's going to take some time. Uh, but the folks who really look and bet on this market early on will have some difficult challenges, obviously, but the potential upside, I think, is pretty big. I mean, just so you know, we had uh, a large organization, global financial firm, um, offer us money, uh, a full buyout, actually, in November last year. Hmm. Uh, because they're looking to penetrate this market and, you know, wanted an entry point, which had many users already. Mm. Um, and this is November, this is what, like nine, seven, seven months in, you know, and I was like, whoa, <laughs> you know, because I, I mean, I did not expect that. Um, but, you know, when they came here, they just wanted a market entry point. And so I think, again, as, as, as it starts to evolve and grow over time, um, I think it's going to happen more often. And when one person has an exit and people see, hey, you know, Stuart got really successful after this and there was a startup then more and more people might be comfortable taking that. But given that there's not many examples for people to learn from, it becomes hard. Mm. And this is where it gets really interesting because risk is, is the thing that also, you know, it's the cliche. It's like there, there is no reward without risk. Um, and then perception is all wrapped up to it in, the, in that as well. And then even in San Francisco where this, there's this place yeah. where it's considered like smart money or smart investors, even like most, most mm -hmm. of the investors here are just following other other investors in order to understand what where, oh, yeah. where they where they do it. They don't really like do the actual like intellectual work of analyzing people's perception of a place and then the actual place itself. I was just having a friend mm -hmm. a conversation with a friend of mine. Both of us lived in Colombia about ten years ago, 
And the perception mm. of that of Colombia at the time was drug dealers, dangerous, uh, yeah. get killed, don't go there. It wasn't at all like, uh, and 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 then ten years later, it still isn't like that. But now people have caught on. They're like, "Oh, Colombia, yeah, I know mm. Colombia. Let's let's go to Colombia." And it's like mm. most most places that I've been to, like the perception, and it's not an American thing. It's 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 mm. all Americans sometimes do get do this a little bit more than other places, but uh, mm. but uh, it's a it's a it's a human thing. I think most humans mm. look at a place and then believe the story that they've been told about that place without really questioning mm. it. And I guess it, it makes sense because they don't have any, you know, like I, I wouldn't have really known that if I, un, until I had gone to those places mm. as well, which gets into an interesting mm. question about, about <laughs> randomly like remote work. And uh, this mm. is a question I always ask people when I'm interviewing them about remote work is how do you know what, whether it's worth it to uh, have the in-person conversation or do it on the phone or on Zoom? Um, and it's interesting. Wow. It's up for me because I'm 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 now I, I talked to Wiza Jalakazi and and uh, Wiza, mm -hmm. Wiza said that you you really have to go in person to start doing some of these interviews, and my my specialty mm -hmm. is, is more Latin America, so I'm so I'm actually going to head to Colombia pretty soon. Um, in order Amazing. To, uh, yeah, start doing these interviews like in in person, really, because that's I'm I, I can do a lot from these interviews. I you know I'm I'm finding out a lot about about Tanzania, but there is something else there that mm -hmm. that that I can't get to over the phone. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't have a question. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, like, just my general thoughts on remote work. I mean, we we have two people who work remotely for us. Um, it was really hard for them uh, initially because uh, they felt lonely and away from the office. And so, what I'd do is I'd bring them down for a month or two months uh, out here, uh, get to hang out with the team, and you know, I think that completely changed the efficiency and productivity because you know, talking on a video call versus like okay now because i know Stuart in person i feel mm. like personally tied when i when i let Stuart down uh versus like you know um but and i think it's going to increase in terms of like remote work but africa is very culturally driven about being there in person uh huge hugely and i think we're spot on especially for some of these larger deals you try to sign with banks like doing it over the phone but people don't take you seriously but when you show up in person, people are like, oh, okay, this guy is pretty serious. Mm. And that's just a, that's, and that, that sounds for big deals. That seems like the answer to the question basically is like, you've mm -hmm. got to do it in person. Oh yeah, totally. So then the other thing is how have, has any investor that is that's invested in you, have they come and visited? Yeah, uh, actually, yeah. So back to the investment part, that's, that was pretty funny when you, when you're talking about it, like the people being in, not being interested in you, then when they see other people interested in them, they're interested in you. Gosh, that was hard for us. So between 2017 to 2019, uh, I have, I think it's 294 rejections oh. from VCs. Um, and I have all their names and all their emails and I have an Excel spreadsheet with everybody who's rejected us. Um, and what's funny is, I still send them like updates, like, you know, every quarter as like, Hey, this is where we're at, you know, and something magical happened when we got into Y Combinator. And I remember sending that update saying we got into YC uh, and literally like two or three days later, like somebody will find my email from like 2018, like, Oh, Hey man, sorry. Just saw this. Uh, I was wondering if you want to catch up on a call uh, next week. And like literally Stuart for the next two, three weeks, folks who never replied me ever, who rejected me in 2017, 2018, started like pinging me. 
like, hey, let me know how I can be helpful. Would love to support. Yeah, Africa, go Africa. Like, you know, emerging markets. Yeah, I'm there. And I was like, whoa, what? Like the trust factor Y Combinator built for us was incredible. Like not even business school did that for me. Yeah. Like, you know, for like, and, and that was like, it was, it was frustrating for me because I'm like, well, how many other great companies on the continent are you missing out on because they don't have a YC stamp? YC, like in my batch, we were only seven African companies, six from Nigeria, one from Tanzania, mm. you know, like, uh, you know, and, and la- this last batch, there's only two companies, both from Egypt. So if, you know, you're only going to invest into those companies, what about everybody else? And so it was, it was some, it was like something magical that all of a sudden happened that, you know, all of a sudden, Hey man, like, yeah, you know, I, I still believe in you. Like, you know, let's talk. Uh, and that was hard for me. Um, because like I'd go back and read some of the emails of, or like my favorite ones were the ones that didn't even open your deck because you'd have a DocuSend email and then, uh, uh, like reject you. Then after rejecting you, like finally open your deck and you're like, wait, what? <laughs> um, how, how did you like, wait, what? I, so you didn't even open my deck, but you rejected me. I'm like, all right, man, cool. Um, so yeah, I feel like, you know, when you're on the continent, you have to work twice as hard to build that trust, um, regarding investors visiting. Um, some of our investors are really thoughtful for us. So we're very fortunate with our um, investor list. We've never announced our round because it doesn't do any benefit for me on the continent. Mm. It just literally puts a target on my head. Mm. So, you know, it, I've just kept quiet about it. And like, I, I kind of, I would like to be, you know, quieter about my rounds as, as much as possible. But, you know, I will say that we had, you know, one of the biggest um, VC funds in Silicon Valley invest into us and were their first African investment. Hmm. Um, and it, it was, they led our entire round. Um, it, so like having them on uh, was massive validation for us um, and knowing that they wanted to support this. Um, and yeah, it's, an, it's a household name that if I mentioned, everybody will know, but you know, we're, we, we, we've decided to keep it, you know, non-disclosed publicly. Hmm. Um, but you know, our other investors definitely come down. So I think we've had three investors already visit us, uh, here in Tanzania. Um, I mean, two of them were doing vacation and then swung by Tanzania and then one came just for us. Mm. So, I mean, that's, that's nice that they've come, uh, by, I mean, I'm, I'm okay with them just doing calls with us. Uh, but there are, is some aspects of visiting and they say, aha, now I get it. Mm. Like that add massive difference. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll visit one day once I get once I get more more funds to make that flight out there. Hey, you're always welcome, man. You got a place to stay. You got folks to hang out with out here. That'd be amazing. Really cool. Well, thank you so much. This has been a really really interesting interview. And uh, looking forward to getting it out to my audience. Uh, and uh, how can people find out more about about you and and, and Nala? Yeah. So um, I actually also write about my journey um, and what I've been learning. So uh, on Medium, they can find Benjamin Fernandez. Uh, on Twitter, Benji, B-N-J-I underscore Fernandez, F-E-R-N-A-N-D-E-S. And then my email, uh, my company email is Benjamin at Nala, N-A-L-A dot money, M-O-N-E-Y. So Benjamin, B-N-J-A-M-I-N at Nala, N-A-L-A dot money. Um, yeah, that's my email. You can reach me there. Um, yeah, I would love to chat, you know, even 
learn more about folks looking at this market. I think even if you're considering investing into this market, it's really fascinating. I think there's a unique opportunity on the continent. I think it's only going to grow and become harder later on as more and more people come in and start throwing money in this place. And so if you can get in early, I think, you know, there's unique risks that that, ha- that possesses, but there's massive potential upside that it can create for you. Very cool. Thank you so much. All right, dude, take care. Hope you enjoyed this episode with Benjamin. I'll be releasing episodes every day, Monday through Friday. You can tune in and get the new newest episode every day, Monday through Friday. I'll probably be doing it for the month of January. I'm going to go on retreat for the month of February, uh, but I will be scheduling podcasts uh, continuing into that as well. And so, yeah, please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. If you like this episode, please leave us a review. Uh, also, so go ahead and subscribe as well. And I'm on Twitter at Stuart Allsop, I-I-I, and my DMs are open. I'd love to hear from you. Have a great day.